You're listening to Let's Talk AI. Welcome to Let's Talk AI. I'm Harold Godwin, Managing Director for Waterloo AI, and I will be your host today. Our guest is Scott Hopkins, Associate Professor in the Department of Chemistry here at University of Waterloo. Welcome, Scott. Well, thank you very much, Harold. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So you've got so many exciting research projects and things going on. But before we go there, let's go back to where it all started for you. If you could share with us your background, where you did your undergrad, master's, PhD, and then how did AI kind of get uh, embedded into all that? Get all mixed in there. Uh, so I started my undergrad uh, back in 1997, previous century, at the University of New Brunswick, um, studying chemistry, and from there fast-tracked into a PhD program. So I skipped the, the master's, uh, and my PhD was in molecular spectroscopy. So I was basically using light to look at uh, the shapes of molecules, figure out how things were, how the atoms were bound together. Uh, after doing my PhD, I then undertook postdoctoral studies at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Uh, in this case, I wasn't looking at the structures of molecules, but how I could blow them up with lasers and see what pieces went flying everywhere. Um, about 18 months after starting there, I moved to the UK, uh, where I did postdoctoral research at the universities of Cambridge and Oxford. And in that case, um, I sort of mixed those two ideas together, my PhD and my first postdoc. And I started uh, holding things in electrostatic traps in vacuum. So sort of like what you'd see out in space. Um, and then blasting the heck out of those molecules with lasers to get the bits to fly off. And the tricks here are to find out what bits fly off and in what directions. Uh, and the whole goal of, of doing this sort of work is to kind of get a quantum fingerprint of matter. And, and by doing that, you know, without question, what the properties and structures of molecules are. So um, in amongst all of that, uh, I started learning some chemical theory and doing some computer programming. Uh, so when I moved to the University of Waterloo in 2011, uh, I started my own lab uh, working on these sorts of ideas and after a few years, around 2016, 2017 or so, uh, it became very clear to me that the processes that I was dealing with were so complicated and that I was generating so much data that I could no longer use my organic neural network, my brain, to actually figure out what was going on anymore. Uh, so I had to start introducing um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, to try to make some sense of, of these reams of data that we were collecting. Uh, and following uh, <laughs> some hiccups along the way, uh, since it did take a little bit of time to climb that learning curve and actually become functional uh, back in those days, this was before you could download a nice package in Python to, to run things for you, um, we started uh, developing some really nice predictive models where we could take the structures and, and the behaviors of our molecules in our experiments and start correlating that with, with physical chemical properties. So these are things like uh, how easy it is to dissolve a molecule in water, uh, how quickly it can move through the human body, 
uh, things along those lines. And that tied us in with um, doing, say, preclinical drug development uh, in collaboration with some um, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, we started looking at that in the context of environmental contamination, right? How contaminants can move through the environment, uh, how toxic they might be to different organisms, you know, people, fish, things along those lines. Um, and from there, it just sort of blossomed, right? We, we're now developing predictive models for all sorts of different things and uh, introducing um, things like uh, SHAP analysis, which is sort of a newer method of interpreting complex models so that we can actually understand the processes that we're measuring experimentally. So that brings us up to kind of where you're at today, I'm guessing. Exactly. Yeah. So how... What is your lab called? Uh, how many people in the team there? Uh, and what's the, what's the big uh, the big the big goal you're chasing now? Is this is this can that be summarized? Is is there a big goal or is it is it general still? Um, we've got a couple big goals that we're chasing. Uh, my lab is uh, very creatively called the Hopkins Laboratory uh, at the University of Waterloo. Um, so, you know, we, we can't claim to be uh, very creative in our endeavors with naming things, but certainly in the scientific sphere, we, we are. Um, depending on the year, I mean, we, the people in the lab depend on funding and scholarships and, and you get that natural cycle with some people graduating and then having to replace. Uh, but we're normally around 10 to 12 people that, that work in my group, uh, ranging from master's, PhD to, to postdoctoral fellows. And again, depending on the year, we actually have undergraduate students come and work with us as well, uh, doing you know, co-op terms or, or honors research projects in the last year of their undergraduate degrees. And um, I guess the main thrust of what we're doing right now is uh, on the technical side, what we're doing is actually measuring how molecules behave in dynamic electric fields. So what we're doing is subjecting a molecule to a really uh, high frequency, high voltage electric field so that we can see how it behaves, which sounds very esoteric, <laughs> but what it turns out to be useful for is we're actually tuning how that molecule can interact with its environment by doing that. So when uh, our molecule is under low field conditions, it's actually moving very slowly. And when molecules move slowly, they're cold. When the fields are turned up to very high field conditions, the molecules get accelerated, they're moving very fast. And what that means is we're effectively heating the molecules up and doing that with electric fields, which we can really control well. So by monitoring how that how that happens, uh, we can actually use machine learning to correlate that behavior with a whole raft of, of interesting properties. And we've been recently looking at things like um, how molecules can pass through cell membranes, uh, but not needing cell membranes at all to do this. <laughs> all we're doing is, is jiggling these things around in a high frequency electric field and then using machine learning to tell us exactly how that would behave in, say, your kidney cells, right? Things along those lines. Uh, so so the, the broad goal of what we're doing is just trying to understand how structure and, and molecular properties relate to one another. 
but in a sort of a specific fashion. Uh, we've been uh, really focusing recently on things like metabolites. Uh, so uh, the the things that your body generates as it as it works, and uh, in screening metabolites, you can actually um, deduce uh, and diagnose metabolic diseases. So, for example, if your liver isn't functioning well, your body is going to produce different molecules than it would if your liver was functioning well, and and we can separate those those different systems. And use machine learning now to to develop a model to say, oh, you've got a liver dysfunction, for example, or uh, you might have early onset glaucoma. You'd better go check with uh, a medical specialist on on these things. So that's the metabolites that are the indicators, if you want to call them. Exactly. So so we would call those biomarkers, uh, and they're they're basically little flags that your body is throwing up saying, oh, something has gone wrong here. Something is malfunctioning. And now we're generating this thing instead of the stuff that we would normally want to make. And is this uh, entirely new or has it been, have these biomarkers been noticed or identified previously? Uh, so, so some biomarkers are well known um, and others are not. Uh, in, in the metabolic area, uh, for example, humans have something on the order of 200,000 different metabolites. Uh, which means, you know, I think it doesn't have to be stated. Humans are very complex systems, right? And and if you want to have a molecular map of a human being, there's there's a lot of things that you need to consider. Um, some of those are endogenous things that we have inside of us. Uh, other things are um, contaminants that come from our environment, and and this is another area that we're actually working in right now. Um, you probably have heard of something called a forever chemical or forever chemicals. Uh, these are fluorinated species um, known as PFAS, per and polyfluorinated alkyl substances. Um, there's There was a really good movie on this a few years ago actually called uh, Dark Waters. Uh, uh, and, and it's basically outlining um, the use of these fluorinated chemicals to make you know, all sorts of really useful products like firefighting foams and food packaging and nonstick cookware, uh, things along those lines. But the, the molecules themselves are actually uh, being linked to a whole range of diseases in humans, uh, running from, you know, cancers through to metabolic disorders and uh, thyroid disorders and, and, you know, things along these lines. So, um, on the bright side, here in Canada, we don't make any of those molecules. Those aren't those aren't produced in Canada, but we import them in many many different goods. Right. So if if you've got a uh, waterproof rain jacket, there's a, a possibility that that these molecules are embedded in that waterproof rain jacket, uh, and they are appearing in the environment, moving through the environment. They are very chemically stable and resistant to degradation by physical or chemical means. Uh, and that is actually a problem because uh, when, when, when organisms eat them, right, uh, through either plants that are contaminated or other animals that have eaten plants that are contaminated, it bioaccumulates, meaning it, the concentrations build up in your body faster than you can excrete them. And, and now you're approaching concentrations that can actually cause health problems. Is that one of the impetus behind 
you know, the air conditioners and the restrictions on the, the fluids they were using in air conditioners? It's it's not the same molecule. So I think you're probably thinking of uh, fluorocarbons. Like the, free, uh, the freons and some of those things. Exactly. So these these halogenated molecules have been linked to problems in the past for other things. Uh, CFCs, um, if I remember correctly, are carcinogenic, meaning they, they have been linked with causing cancer, but they're also... Uh, a real problem for the greenhouse effect and global warming, right? And um, that, I think, is now becoming uh, a very evident problem around the world. Um, you can you can certainly see it in Canada these days with the forest fires and the heat waves that we're having and on the East Coast, it's, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, this this all sort of underscores the reason why we really want to know the structures and properties of molecules before we go into mass production and, and distribution of these guys, right? Uh, because, you know, it's it can be a complicated process when you're emitting those into the environment. So you talked a bit earlier about using machine learning to do this. Take us down that rabbit hole, kind of a little bit more insight into exactly how you're using AI. Uh, so originally it was it was pretty simple supervised learning uh, tasks that we were doing, we would we would start by uh, saying, okay, we've got this molecule. Here's some of its properties: its mass. Here's how it behaves in, uh, say, a, a mass spectrometer, which is one of the instruments that we use to measure uh, the the behavior of these molecules. And we would say, given that information, uh, and knowing that it has whatever some degree of solubility in water, can we now make a prediction on? On another molecule that's similar, uh, and of course the the um, I guess rule of thumb for machine learning with supervised tasks anyway is that you need to have a fairly big representative data set so that you can build some sort of predictive model. So uh, for many years we were essentially turning a crank and generating as much data as we could. Um, in, in that process, we're trying to study interesting chemical species so that we can learn something about their quantum structure. But always in the back of our head, we're thinking, hey, we're, we're making a really nice library here. How are we going to address this with a global perspective? And that's really where the machine learning aspects came in. So um, in addition to that sort of supervised machine learning methodology, um, which has evolved over the years, right? We started with, you know, simple decision trees and random forest methods, things like, like this. Um, we, we've now moved up to some more modern methods, um, extreme gradient boosting, stuff along those lines. Uh, but even that is, is uh, not cutting the mustard for a lot of things now. And more recently, uh, we've started exploring uh, transformer architectures, uh, like as are used in ChatGPT. Uh, in, in this sort of scheme, uh, your transformer, um, in a nutshell is, is not only drawing relations between say adjacent words in a sentence, but in terms of the context of words in the wider sentence so that you can, uh, have almost like a, a language, uh, understanding and processing ability, right? So anybody that's used something like ChatGPT will know that you can ask it a question and it will give you an answer that sounds like there's somebody on the other end of the line typing the answer out to you. Uh, in the chemistry context, um, we can actually map that, that process one-to-one -one. because if you think of a molecule, each atom in a molecule is almost like a word 
and the arrangement of those atoms in the word and uh, not necessarily just the ones next to each other uh, actually inform the properties and behaviors of that molecule, right? So if we have whatever, two carbon atoms side by side, then bound to an oxygen, that's going to be very different from a carbon bound to an oxygen bound to another carbon, right? So what we're doing is employing a language model to interpret the language of chemistry. And by doing that, we can then make some predictions of observables, right? So for example, what happens if I shine light on this molecule? What happens if I uh, give it a really big smack with another really high energy particle, things along those lines, and and make some actually very accurate predictions of that behavior, which we can then go and test in the lab to make sure that we're on track. Um, nine times out of 10, it, it actually works. And w- that one time out of 10 where it doesn't, we can then raise our finger and go, aha, what are we missing? Right, And then that helps direct our research down those paths. Okay, so this sounds like really core foundational kind of research. What does the future look like? Where do you see this going if you could connect the dots forward to paint a picture of the future? Um, I I think uh, what we're starting to see right now is that um, the way that we're leveraging machine learning is actually highlighting gaps in our knowledge. So my opinion is that um, you're not going to be able to replace the, the researchers, the people themselves, because we're able to synthesize things that you might not normally connect, right? So I think we've all had that scenario where you're just falling asleep or just waking up and two thoughts that don't seem to connect all of a sudden do. And, and it's like, wow, I never thought of the world that way before. But I think AI is a tool for identifying um, gaps in knowledge and directing research into really interesting areas could be a a really neat way forward. And it could start tying together things that you don't normally expect, right? Maybe, you know, biology and, and quantum information processing, you know, throwing out totally random examples here, but um, that that's, that's one direction I could see going. Uh, Another direction that I could see being very useful would be in meta-analysis, right? There, there's a lot of information out there right now held in lots of different databases, some public, some not. Um, and one of the issues that we have underscoring uh, advancement in science, or rather inhibiting advancement in science, is, is uh, the issue of reproducibility. So um, for those that haven't heard of, Uh, Quite often, certainly at frontier science, we seem to run into an issue of um, being able to reproduce results from one lab to another or from one instrument to another. You'll see a a study published where people generate some really good, interesting results, and then somebody on the other side of the world tries, tries to reproduce it, and they're unable to, and we don't know why, right? Um quite often it comes down to very simple things that we just don't consider. For example, maybe the humidity in Waterloo is too high so that we can't reproduce results from someone who's done some measurements in Arizona where it's really dry. And that's just not something that was on our radar to look at. Um, But if you can take a global view of all of that information, uh, which is not something you can do with your, again, organic neural network, right? That's something that you need big computing power for. 
then you can start teasing things out to say, okay, so if we look at this uh, from a different perspective, you can see actually these are two different experiments, even though they look the same. So if you want to actually test reproducibility, here's the thing that you need to do. Okay. Right. So you 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 coined, uh, sorry said the term meta analysis in real simple language. What does that mean? Um, so uh, a, a typical scientific analysis that I would conduct would be me taking a, a a bunch of measurements to get some data in my lab, and then working on that small data set. I would then try to draw some conclusions and and you know make some predictions for future work that could be done. Here are some open questions. Uh, everybody does that, right? But what very few people do is to collect data from labs that may be working sort of in a similar area from around the world and look at all of that collected data together to see what's consistent and what is not, right? Um, the, the reason why uh, we don't do that uh, is one, there hasn't been a big push to do that, although I think that's coming. Uh, and, and the other reason is um, science is pretty expensive. So, you know, my, my lab to, to create, you know, tens of millions of dollars to get this thing off the ground and do measurements. And if I want to reproduce what John Q. Scientist has done in, in California, I need to reproduce his laboratory first, which means I need to invest another 10, $20 million to get that lab off the ground in order to try to reproduce exactly his measurements. Um, of course, that's that's not going to work. So what we tend to do is to uh, look for as many similarities as we can do, as we can in, in an experimental setup and test those to see how they behave. Uh, and that's sometimes easily done and sometimes not. Uh, and of course, in different fields, there's going to be a different price tag on these things. So, you know, not everybody's going to build a CERN in order to test, right, the particle physics behavior at high high fields. So if we look at the, the big benefits here for humanity, if you want to call it, um, I'm, I'm guessing your work would then help affect policies for reducing these floral uh not fluorocarbons, but the other uh, uh, fluorinated ones you mentioned. And what what are the other big takeaways? Like, are we going to get better medicines, uh, better something? Fill in the blanks there. What, what, what's the big goal? Big win? Yep. Yep. So, so you know, on the on the personal medicine side, um, there's there's wins in the sense of diagnosis and early detection for sure. Um, there's there's a belief that the body doesn't go off the rails immediately, right? We have internal correction mechanisms and healing mechanisms that try to, to you know, fix any illnesses we might have. Um, and, and then there's sort of a, a slow decay into, into a disease state. S slow on the timescale of molecules, I should say, right? I mean, you know, diseases can go very quickly on the timescale of human beings. Uh, so if we can, if we can monitor the, the human chemical space, right, then, then we have a, a, a potential way of, of diagnosing and uh, catching things early so that we have a better chance of treating. And does that have, does that have to be through blood tests or is it going to be saliva or how do we get to the, how do we get the sample fluid or the sample? All, all of those things are, 
well. You know, all of these things are possible. Blood is is a very good way, but it's invasive, right? You need to get the blood out. So things like uh, urine, uh, saliva, tear fluid is is a good one, right? You need to sing someone a sad song and collect a tear, and maybe that'll that'll help. Um, so so th- those are directions that we can go in, and ultimately. Um, it would be good for us to map this from an individual perspective, right? Not just as a population perspective, because the way that you metabolize your Friday evening pizza might be different from the way I metabolize my Friday evening pizza. And uh, just because you're showing slightly different concentrations of a particular molecule in your tear fluid doesn't mean that you're ill. (laughs) <laughs> right. So, so we need to, to, to take a, a more detailed perspective of those things. Um, the same, same goes with developing new, uh, pharmaceuticals, right? So new medicines, uh, may affect different people differently and, um, having a more detailed molecular perspective of, of why that is could be very beneficial. Right. So, so things along those lines are, are certainly, um, high priorities when it comes to AI in the chemistry space. Excellent. Well, this is a exciting future ahead. I think, you know, I mean, all your work is stepwise growing to bigger and bigger impact. This is incredible. Yeah, we're certainly trying. And, and the nice thing of course, is when you're developing machine learning, it's, it's a data handling uh, process. That's really, you know, statistics on, on, adrenaline, right? So, so what we're developing in the chemical space does actually translate to other spaces, right? So recently, uh, we've started working with some optometrists who are um, monitoring eye movement. And we found that some of the machine learning um, methods that we've developed for predicting chemical properties actually translate really well into um, measuring eye movements and predicting neurodegenerative uh, issues. So things like Parkinson's disease. So it's still early days in that realm, but um, it's, it's all um, tied together by, by machine learning and artificial intelligence these days, which is, you know, really exciting. That's, that's not something I would have predicted I would have got into in 1997 as that, pimply faced little boy who started studying uh, chemistry. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's been fun and it's really exciting to see where it's going to go. Okay. Well, thanks again. Thank you for joining us and uh, wish you all the best and continued success in your area of research. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, Harold. Awesome. Take care. Mm-hmm.